You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Mais qu'est-ce que c'est que ça Il se passe quoi là ah Vous dites quoi la guerre On va danser au concours Je danse avec vous Quoi Oh mais les gens t'ont grave qui fait que tu vois tous les likes qu'on a eu vous savez où passe l'esprit du mal Ce sont ces femmes dénudées pour le mariage de ton père. Regarde comment elle te va. Tu es une femme maintenant. Amis T'étais où là T'as foutu quoi J'étais en retard. En retard Je suis désolée, je suis désolée. Mais dis pas que... Non, tu l'as volé Oh la déglage, j'y comprends pas À quoi tu joues là, Ami Qui es-tu, Ami Laisse couler l'eau, ma chérie. Les péchés s'effacent avec. Vous avez quel âge Non, vous en Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Angela Mack. I'm very glad to be here again. And joining us in the booth for the first time is Ms. Judith Maine. Hello, everyone. I am excited to be here, and I can't wait to talk about this film, which I adore. This week, we are looking at Mamuna Ducure's controversial 2020 film, Minyen, which is better known in the U.S. as Cuties. It is the story of Amy, played by Fathia Youssef, a girl whose family is from Senegal, but now living in Paris. She's there with her mother, and the return of her father is imminent. She learns that her father is marrying a second wife and will be bringing her with him when he returns. This pushes Amy to act out. We will be spoiling this film as we go ahead, so please be warned. Go check it out. It's on Netflix. Very easy to find. It's not like we're talking about some sort of obscure French film from the 1940s or something. So, Angela, when was the first time you saw Cuties, and what did you think? Well, you know, honestly, it's probably not the type of film that I would have rushed out to go see. But then with all the Netflix uh, controversy, and especially people calling to ban the film, I had to go watch it. And um, it was a bit of a, we can say mindfuck, right? I kept pausing it, you know, checking the timestamps, seeing, like, does the pedophilia come in here? Does it come in like in an hour? <laughs> you know, and there was like 10 minutes left of the movie. I'm like, really? They packed it all at the end? So um, I, I thought it was a brilliant movie, but I kind of thought like I must have been watching the wrong film. Yeah, I, I'm still astounded by the continued detraction towards it. And Judith, how about yourself? Well, I too was inspired to see the film because of the controversy. I was a little upset with myself. I try to follow 
new French cinema, I was a little upset with myself that I didn't know anything about the film. But because of the controversy, I watched it on, on Netflix. And like Angela, like you, Angela, I kept thinking, like, where, what's the problem with this? Where's the, you know, what is it that has people so upset about it? Um, I have to say, I, I love the film, but I also think it's a really disturbing film. And that's part of why I love it so much. Um, the director and the actresses, the young actresses that she worked with, they managed to create this atmosphere of both inquiry and longing and curiosity about what it means to be a girl not even close to being on the verge of, of, of womanhood. So I, I thought it was just an amazing, an amazing film. You're disturbing in so many ways, heartbreaking ways, but not in the way so many of the reviews say. I know. It's it's astonishing to me that, I mean, clearly Ted Cruz's ca- campaign against the film had nothing to do with the film as a way to get it Netflix, I guess, because the Obamas have a deal with, with Netflix. But then people who actually saw the film, I guess, got on the bandwagon and said it was horrible and pornographic and it was pedophilic and nothing could be further from the truth vis-a-vis this film. I mean, what's disturbing about it is, yes, that these girls are trying to do a performance of what they see as attractive teenage behavior. And it's awkward. It's horrible to watch. You know, they never look really comfortable in what they're doing, except them when they're being kids. Those parts of the film are terrific. I actually saw this. I had a, a secret meeting. I got an email and I went to Ping Pong Pizza and I saw this in the basement where we have our pedophilia meetings. And I thought it was great. <laughs> I was going to stay away from this movie because all I heard was negativity. And then, Judith, you actually asked for this to be covered. I sent you a whole list of everything that we're covering for the year. And you're just like, yeah, yeah. How about cuties? And I'm like, oh, fuck. Okay. <laughs> now I have to see it. Yeah. Now I have to see it. And I was I watched it just the other night for the first time and I was at the Red Cross donating platelets. So it's like me sitting there and this TV in front of me and I felt slightly embarrassed because there's some interesting images that go on on <laughs> screen. And I'm just like I hope nobody thinks that I'm some sort of big old pedophile here, but I was blown away and I can't stop thinking of the movie because it was just so powerful. And I kept trying to think of other coming of age films for women and it's tough. There's just not a market of that. Like I'm thinking of like, you know, Carrie was older when she had her first period. There are other films like, uh, sisterhood of the traveling pants, like some of those types of movies. But this idea of, a young girl who's got a really rough home life. Like it's not like she's being beaten or anything or uh, that her home is particularly poor, but this idea of her father coming home with a new bride who I think is going to be having a baby very shortly thereafter. And then her mom and seeing her mom or hearing her mom cry that is so rough. That scene where she was under the bed listening to the conversation that her mother is having and hearing her mother wail, that just tore the heart of me. And that colors the entire rest of the film because she is not 
happy with where her life is at. And all of this is her acting out. It was just, yeah, it's remarkable. One of the many things I admire about this is how the girl's point of view is what really opens the film. And, well, except for the opening shots that flash forward to the end of the film, where she looks so uncomfortable. But when the film proper begins, everything is her perspective. And that sounds obvious. Oh, it's a film about, you know, pre-teenage girls. Of course, it's going to be a female point of view. That's not easy. And there aren't many films that do that. And I can't think of anything really to compare this to in terms of the, in terms of the age. Because I think in the French context, one of the films that it might be compared to is, um, Céline Siama's film. It was translated as Girlhood in the United States called Villa. That film, it's about much older girls, and so in a way it's completely irrelevant, but it's also, girlhood takes place in a, in a, um, mostly black suburb of, of, of Paris, and there are gangs, girl gangs in the film, and I have to say, watching them was like absolutely fabulous, but there's also some really uncomfortable scenes, sort of like the one in Cuties, where they pull down Amy's pants and we see, they take a picture of her and the child is ratty looking underwear. There's sort of a scene like that in, in, in girlhood, but aside from that, and again, it's, it's young women who are much older, like 19, 20, 18, 19, 20, just totally different. You know? I don't, I can't think of anything that does quite what this one does. Yeah, certainly not with girls, you know. I, I mean, I, I think that kept playing in my head of all the movies, whether it was like Stand By Me or, what was it, Good Boys that was recently out? It was comedy about kids. It, but it's always boys, and boys can talk about everything, but it's funny, it's it's okay. And watching this, it, it kind of reminded you of, you did feel a little uncomfortable with certain scenes, but I think it was just the lack of exposure to actually seeing these themes on film and so bared. But when the um, the scene with her under the bed, honestly, that scene hit me, you know, when I'm watching it, and it was just so shattering of how did anyone see this movie and walk away not mentioning that scene, you know, mentioning close-ups and not that. The identification with her mother is 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 so strong. And the scene is just, it's horrifying. And I think one of the things that I read about this film is that there are a lot of assumptions about how Muslim women think and how they behave. And a lot of those assumptions rely on the idea that Muslim women are totally obedient and totally just go along with whatever the the custom, usually male-centered and male-defined custom is. And I love the way this film shows that there are real complications in Muslim communities, in this case in Paris, but there are real complications in terms of how these things are lived and how they affect women in their day-to-day experiences. The mother is horrified by the fact that there's going to be another bride sharing her space with her. And I don't think that often gets a whole lot of attention. And so... That's another one of the things I so admire about this film. It takes place in the 19th arrondissement of Paris, which is typically a working class and immigrant uh, neighborhood of the city. 
the specifics of how this young girl has to navigate between uh, what appears to be a traditional Muslim family setup and then the world outside of her apartment where sexuality is so much on display and where there's a bunch of mean girls that she both fears and admires at her at her at her school. I thought that was done just beautifully in the film. And the girl's reaction is both horror on the part of what her mother is going through, but also I think real fear that the same thing is going to be imposed on her at, at some point. And it well could be. The woman who plays La Tante Auntie, the one who's always holding forth about um, the way things have to be for Muslim girls and women, um, who's also always instructing the women on the proper morality behind things. The actress who plays her is the same actress. The director coaxed her out of retirement. Um, she is the same actress who played the lead in Black Girl, the Usman oh, wow. film from, I think it's the 60s, isn't oh, it? My. That's one of the kind of foundational films of African and Senegalese cinema. So I think that's a really great callback to another related tradition of African filmmaking. So I thought that was pretty amazing. Amy's on the outs in so many ways. You know, she is an immigrant. She is not wealthy. She is female. She's Muslim. She is in that liminal space between girlhood and womanhood. You know, she experiences her period the first time during this film. She doesn't know what's going on with that. Even if it's not the same thing is going to happen to me later on in my life, she is definitely afraid of what happens to the first family when the second family comes along. It's worse than being like a stepdaughter. It's your dad is coming back from someplace else. He's kind of a stranger to you and he's bringing this new woman and basically she's going to be the favorite. The The kids that they have together will be the favorite. So she's being on the outs in her own family as well. Like I know we all feel like strangers to our parents sometimes, but this is going to really push her into that space. And so, yeah, it is very natural that she tries to rebel. And the way that she rebels is stealing things. She steals these prayer beads. She isn't paying attention when they're doing prayers. She pulls her head scarf over her head and is watching YouTube videos of just really raunchy (laughs) music videos and seeing these things and taking that and being like, this is what men want. This is how we are supposed to act. It's like, we're blaming the movie for this stuff. And it's like, no, 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 this is the movie just reflecting things back onto us. This is the film saying these are the images that these kids are seeing. They are obsessed with likes on Instagram and having that presence out there. So her stealing a phone and immediately starting up an Instagram account, looking at her friend, uh, the other girl that lives in the same building, she is really doing what we've seen other children do in movies uh, vandalism, these kind of things. She's not necessarily doing that, but she is acting out in the same way that we've seen other children act out in films and that we see children act out in real life. Her rebellion isn't fun to watch all the time. You know, something that puzzles me about the film, you know, the two posters, there's the French poster for the film, which shows the girls after the 
shopping spree where they're throwing things in the air. And then the American, or the Netflix poster for the film, which shows a scene from that last uncomfortable dance performance where they really do the raunchiest, I think, moves that they've done yet in the film. I have those on my computer in front of me. The image uh, from the French image from Mignon is they look joyful. They look happy. They're throwing things in the air. If you look closely, I guess you can see that they're somewhat sexualized and that they're wearing tight outfits, but that's not what draws your attention. It's the group of girls. But if you look closely at the Netflix poster, which got everyone so upset and was really the core of the reaction, those girls look uncomfortable. This is not just a sexualized image. They have the most pained expressions on their face, except for the one, the blonde girl. But then she's not in the most sexualized pose. It's like the more sexualized the pose is, the more uncomfortable they are. But that's a nuance. And I guess Ted Cruz doesn't go for nuance very much. <laughs> Do they sell them in Cancun? I don't know. At the airport. The way that the film is made, the editing is what really got me. Because the editing saves Amy from a lot of uh, recompense. There are times where she is doing something bad and then the film cuts and it's like that scene is over and we move on with the rest of the movie. There's a moment where she locks her little brother in a bathroom. And basically this is something that we know that has happened before from the way that he acts, the way that she acts, the way that she's got the broom all set up to just barricade him into the, uh, into the bathroom. And then she goes into this new bedroom that they have set up that um, I believe her uncle has set up this bed and it's the marriage bed for the father and the new bride. And she's in there with her new friend, and they're eating gummies and doing all this kind of stuff. And then the whole apartment starts to flood because the brothers started the tub, and it's overflowing. There's a cut, and then that's it. We never get back to that because that would be a major thing to clean up and just how much trouble she would get in. And then there's other parts like uh, her father is on the phone, and her mother hands the phone to her, and she's like, say hi to your father, and her father's there. That's, I think, the only time we really hear him is on the phone and then she takes the phone and she drops it out the window again i was expecting like her mother to smack her in the face or something there and again cut we are saved from that so it's like it's building and and making making me anxious throughout the entire film because it feels like she's just never getting any sort of punishment for these things that she's doing and it just keeps building, building, building until finally there's that explosion towards the end with her mother. And it's like, wow, it just holds you in suspense throughout so much of this. It really does. Yeah, that's, that's well put, Mike. I, I, I really see that, too. It's, it's um, very masterfully done. One, the relationship between her and the girls. And you're right, there's a fear there, but there's a fascination because – there's two groups of girls in this school. I can't remember the older group who are the ones that they're really looking up to. They have so many hits on their videos on YouTube. Sweaty sweeties. And it's just like, thank you. Sweaty sweeties. <laughs> I couldn't tell you what it is in French. But. So there's the sweaty sweeties and then there's the, the cuties, which are uh, the group that Amy is fascinated by. Mm-hmm. And as a... 49 year old man i'm just like hey these aren't the girls that you want to hang out with but as an 11 year old girl i'm like 
wow, these girls seem really interesting, and they're the ones that I want to hang out with. They're the top of this age group. I want to be part of them. And then she does whatever she can to get into that, be it by hook or by crook, by fighting, by insulting people, by learning dance moves, by basically forcing one of the girls out of the club. Just she wants to be part of that. And that's, again, her just wanting to have something to hold on to because she has nothing to hold on to in her life and wanting to be part of that group, wanting to be cool like that group, wanting to be sexy like that group, because she thinks that that is what society wants. And that's liberation. That represents some kind of freedom for her. Now, one thing interesting that happens in the film is that at the beginning, Amy is very much an observer. Um, we see her watching, and she's in a position of curiosity. You know, we see what she sees, what she what she thinks she sees. And then gradually in the course of the film, she becomes, she moves from being an observer, she becomes kind of literally a producer when she introduces the mean girls to the video moves, the, the, move, the dance moves that she's seen on her on the telephone that she steals. And then gradually she becomes an object of spectacle too. Like she becomes the one that people look at. She becomes someone who takes center stage. And it's almost as if that's what girlhood is in this film. It's it's moving from a position of isolated observation to becoming not just a participant, but kind of the star of the show. You know, and that's a real common desire on the part of on the part of young girls. But part of the problem, of course, is that what they think is adulthood is totally messed up. It's a totally screwy idea, and it's part of the culture that we live in. You know, the idea of an an adult woman is an adult woman who is attractive to men, who is conventionally sexy, who puts her everything on display. So I think the film is really great at showing that that torment, that if I'm not going to be a girl who follows everything ex- expected of me in Muslim culture, then who am I going to be? What am I going to be? It's very painful to watch because what she decides she wants to be is just horrible. It's awful to watch these, these dance moves. There's that uh, recurring line throughout the film of, you're a woman now, whether the auntie was like teaching her how to cook for the wedding and which sounds right, you know, getting five huge bags of onions to chop to be a woman that that'll do. <laughs> but then like when her period arrives and her mother tells her she's a woman now, but it, I love the, there's such brilliant nods to things because at the prayer circle near the beginning, uh, she's looking over at the other women and one of them has a hole in her sock. But meanwhile, there's this lavish princess level bedroom for the coming bride. The prayer group's telling her to be pious and to, you know, not embrace sexuality. But meanwhile, the young, you know, supposedly beautiful bride, we were led to assume, you know, given how feminine the bedroom is, that's rewarded. So sexuality is rewarded. And yet she's being told not to be that way. And at every stage, being given a new meter stick of, oh, you're a woman now, you're a woman now. But there are nods with the girls that uh, the one girl is obviously bulimic, that we just see a hint of that. And it's like all these girls are trying to navigate their way through this minefield and, and just with no information to work with. 
except what they see on, on their phones, except what they see in the media. Right. They have no idea how sex works. There's that scene where Amy's in the bathroom and she can hear them talking about stuff. And it's like, if he puts his thing in your mouth, it will come out your vagina. Just all of these, like, those things that you don't know when you're a kid. You know, you have no understanding how this stuff works. It's like, I think about my generation and how tough it was for us to see a playboy or a hustler or something. And then I look at this generation that she's in, that Amy's in, and I'm just like, you can go to Pornhub whenever you want and watch the weirdest shit in the entire world. It's just, it's got to be so tough for kids now to know what's right and what's wrong and what's, what, what is a fantasy versus a reality. I mean, it's not every time the pizza boy arrives, are you going to get fucked? <laughs> That's right. If only, if only. Ew. What if the guy pees in our mouth? <laughs> it's not gross. It's just nature. What do you mean nature? You think that's how babies get made? Ew, and that's gross. Look at the girl's face. I bet it's rape, right? I heard if it's rape, it goes right through your whole body. The guy puts it in and it comes out your mouth. No, yeah. no guy's thing is long enough to come out of your mouth. Well, it depends <laughs> on the guy, of course. I've seen my brothers. It's not that long. <laughs> Maybe your brother's has to finish growing. <laughs> Ew! I can't watch that. That is so gross. And your phone's crap. You can barely see anything. Can I raise a question to both of you? Um, and it's related to what you were just commenting on, Angela, the repetition of you're a woman now. And um, she gets to chop up onions because she's a woman now, which is kind of apropos after all, because there are certain expectations of being a woman and housework is one of them. But honestly, I thought the way that scene was set up with Auntie and her mother coming in to rouse her very early in the morning, you're a woman now, you're a woman now. I really thought that we were being set up for a scene of genital cutting. Neither of you get that feel. I mean, I thought, yeah, I really, I really, and I feared, of course, that that's what was going to happen. And of course it doesn't. I, so, so for that reason, I found the whole prelude and then the chopping up onions is both disturbing, but also a great relief. And it's true. I mean, genital cutting has been banned in Senegal, but it still happens. And genital cutting is illegal in France, but it still happens. And in some ways, I think it's very clever on the part of the director because for a so-called Western white audience watching this, that's kind of the expectation is that there's going to be a grandiose or horrible scene of genital mutilation when we're talking about someone from a country where the practice still um, still occurs. And I thought that was a really great kind of tweaking of audience expectations. You know, you may think this is what you're being set up for, but no, no, this is completely different. It reminds me, I was at a conference once where a woman who was a specialist in African cinema was getting a talk. When we turned to the, it was, it was about Semben, about Semben's films. And when we turned to the Q&A, a young white college student stood up and said, I have to ask you, and this is quite a few years ago, um, it was when uh, a lot of media attention was being given to genital mutilation. 
And she stood up and she said, I just have to ask you, to the woman who gave the paper on Sen Ben, what about genital cutting? It was one of these, it was horrifying that here's this woman who gave a really good paper about the films of Usman Sen Ben, and all she, all the, the person in the audience wants to ask is tell me about genital cutting. And, you know, it's so common. Not that genital cutting isn't horrible. Of course it is. But to reduce African women in countries where genital cutting is practiced, to reduce them to that is, is really a form of absolute racism. And I love the way that this director I think suggests that that's what's going to happen and then turns it completely on its head. Do you see that? Do you agree with me? Did you see it the same way? I didn't have the impression that morning when, you know, she comes in and says, I'm going to teach you how to be a woman. But when she came in and the woman was sitting there and then we see that she's, you know, has the menstrual spotting on her pants, then I was kind of afraid of like, oh, no. You know, because she, the woman begins to tell her backstory of, you know, I was engaged at your age, and then they covered me in white. And it was like, oh, no. And it didn't go there. It was like, oh, thank God, because I don't know if I, it was just so deep. And there were, the film just has talons in your brain. And I didn't know if I could really take that on top of the rest of it. To me, that's another sign of the brilliance of this director is um, suggesting that and then turning it completely around, turning it completely on its head. I didn't necessarily think about the cutting, but I definitely felt throughout the entire thing that there was a danger to her being so sexualized, especially, well, there's two parts. One, when they sneak into the laser tag place, and there's the guy who is trying to, he's going to call the police on them, and there's the really kind of scary looking guy that comes over and then they start twerking and dancing. And I'm just like, Oh no, he's going to try to get with one of these girls. And then there's the part later where the uncle finds out that his phone was stolen by her and she starts to strip. And I'm just like, you better do the right thing, buddy. Yep. And he does. <laughs> and he does. He does the right yep. thing. Thank goodness. And then she, it's like she's rejected by that, goes into the bathroom, and then takes a picture of her genitals. And I'm just like, oh, no. Isn't that horrible? Oh, man. It is bad. That's so painful. It's so bad. So awful. Yeah. But that's the desperation that she feels, you know? Well, it's, Anything it's interesting. There's a huge difference, and, and it was so deftly done by the director, of what her perception is and what's going on and what you're seeing. I mean, what a brilliant mirror to have that, um, you know, when she takes her hoodie off for the handyman, or I assume you say handyman, you know, obviously she's too young, but everyone has been telling her eight ways to Sunday that she's a woman now. So it's like, well, which is it? And the situation there, it's one of many, many so painful moments in the film, trying to present herself as a sexual object, and she doesn't know how. She may think she does, but, you know, she's just awkward, and it's it's just horribly uncomfortable. And like you said, Mike, thank God, the uncle pushes her pushes her away. Well, when they are in the, uh, I think they're in the woods, and they find that condom, and the one thinks it's just like a balloon and blows up, it's like, I had girlfriends who had that those moments when I was younger. And it's just startling that some of the girls 
it's truly the reality of it that some of the girls know what's going on. Other girls are like, oh, no, you're going to get AIDS because that's on a condom, which I, I guess is true. But you're not going to get rid of AIDS by brushing your tongue. It's like the lack of sexual education is, is possibly one of the most disturbing aspects of the film that so many of the reviews um I read were saying were, were asking the question of whether the actresses were too young for these scenes and these storylines, like whether it was inappropriate to have a girl that age doing those things because the reviewers were suggesting that the girls wouldn't fully understand the scene. But I, I beg to differ. I mean, like what Mike said earlier, that there is such a wealth of exposure in the world right now to the youth. That's exactly what's going on with them. So I think the reason the girls did the scene so well is because this is their life. They're exposed to this stuff on a daily basis. One thing about that I, I admire, because I too have heard the criticism about, oh, you know, if you're not disturbed by the content of the film, aren't you disturbed by the fact that these actresses are so, are so young? She, the director, met with the girls regularly. I mean, talked to them constantly, and she had a psychologist on set to talk with the girls about the scenes that they were performing so that they understood what the film was trying to get across, which I thought was really, was really great. The girls in this are such fabulous actresses, too. The girl who plays Amy is, I, I just think, a marvel on, on screen, and evidently the director uh, gave them some leeway to ad-lib their own lines. Um, and I think that comes across like these girls do not seem awkward. Um, it feels like the director really, really had an intimacy with them. And I think it shows in the, in the final film. It doesn't feel like they are acting. It feels like this is more of a documentary a lot of times, especially those scenes when the girls are all together and it's like, okay, yeah, this is how they would act together. This is how you are when you're with your friends and you're this age and you're trying to figure out the world. That's what it very much feels like, especially those scenes like when they're down uh, practicing and they see her uh, up above looking down on them and they just start throwing rocks at her. And I'm just like, yep, that that would happen. Yeah. That yeah. same kind of thing has happened in my life. Yes. yes. And it's such a paradox because these girls want to be looked at, not while they're rehearsing, obviously, but they want to be looked at, but they're enraged that anybody should look at them while they're while they're practicing. The one thing that I want to talk about, too, is the dress and how the dress that she is given from Senegal represents so much. And the dress, the day that she has her first period, we don't even know that she's having her first period, but the dress seems to. It is bleeding that morning. There's another part where she comes back in and the dress seems to be full almost like it's breathing and that there's a person inside of it. I love this kind of almost like a magical realism that she's doing with the dress, just that it represents so much of, you know, you're going to have to wear this dress when your dad comes with his new bride. It's like the symbol of oppression for her, this beautiful blue dress, but yet she's going to have to wear it. She's going to have to be on display and she's going to have to accept this thing with her father and she just wants to do anything other than that. So rather than that beautiful blue dress, she's going to put on those tights, extra makeup, all of that, the, the stuff on her lips, the, she's going to put her hair out in the way that she does color with the purple. And I honestly, at the 
not to jump too far ahead, but at the end of the movie, when she goes and is in that final performance, when she pushes Yasmin off of the, uh, the street into the river, I thought Yasmin was going to die because she is not a very good swimmer. Thank goodness there's a boy there because otherwise I don't think she really would have had too much of a second thought, Amy, if Yasmin had died because she's that desperate to be part of that group. And that's another moment like what you mentioned earlier, Mike, that there's no consequences for what she does. I mean, I think we do eventually see um, Yasmin alive, but there's no reason to think that she would have survived that moment, you know. Amy does some really horrible things, and I like that, you know, that this is not, she's no role model. She's a a real living, breathing 11-year-old trying to negotiate between um, the culture of her family and the culture of the modern-day Paris in the 19th arrondissement. It's an impossible choice. It's crazy that life imitates art in the way that I, I read um, mentioned in a couple reviews of the group of girls being referred to as like the bad girls or the bad influences. But truly, Ami was the bad influence. Yeah, she's the one that comes to them and says, hey, if you want to be sexy, this is how you do it and shows them the biting of the lip and putting the finger in the mouth and all of these things that she's seen in these music videos. And yeah, she's the one that really introduces the twerking to the routine, the whole thing of them being basically down flat on the ground and lifting up their pelvis and doing all these sex moves. I sound like an old man when I say (laughs) that, but that's what they are. The other side of that, of course, is that they don't seem to be very good at twerking. She is, I think. But, you know, when she teaches them how to twerk, honest to goodness, I felt like, wow, she might as well be teaching me how to twerk with my, you know, arthritic aging body. Um, <laughs> and then the the worst, though, is the, the finger in the mouth, the attempt to imitate that pose of seduction and availability. And they just look like kids trying to do something they don't really know how to how to do. But you're right, Mike, it's Amy who really who really does bring a lot of the uh, saturated, sexualized movement to the group. Because we're so accustomed to having it really drilled in of if girls that age are doing these things, you know, only a pedophile looks at that or enjoys it or, you know, it's really a wall between the two because the reality was she's putting her finger in her mouth and showing the girls, and the one girl's like, and I think it was Angelica, was wrinkly her nose, like, ew, I had to put my finger in my mouth. And it was kind of funny. And it was like, it's so sad that, you know, if boys were doing something similar, if they were trying to have muscle shirts or, I don't, I don't know really what the boy equivalent of it would be, but it would be funny. And it would be innocent, but it's, it isn't innocent for a girl, which, it really ties it all up with ribbon that exactly what the director was shining a light on is exactly what the movie was detracted for. Well, they're performing for like what they imagine is a male audience, but the few times we see them actually interact with guys, it's horrendous. Like that time they run into the boys at the, I think it's at the park, um, and they stand there like tongue tied, not knowing what to say to them. And so the gap between 
what they imagine they're projecting in their performances and then how they actually can be with with boys or adult men in their everyday lives. The gap is huge between those. But I, I find it's totally on point that if you want to get a guy, tell him that you know the Pythagorean theorems by heart. I am so glad that they would cut back to the audience during that final act and have those women in the audience just looking disgusted. And I was like, okay, good. So, at least, <laughs> But then you do get the one guy that's in the audience who's just like, hey, all right. Yeah, the leech. Like, oh, yeah, wow. yeah, the leech. I'm sorry. I said leech, the leech. <laughs> if I were to make a comparison to one movie for this one, I would think it might be Welcome to the Dollhouse. I think that captures that whole idea of being on the cusp of womanhood, not understanding things. I mean, the main character in that really does a good job. And then the the one character that I just, I hate with the passion of a thousand sons, just because he's so realistic is the boy that's in Welcome to the Dollhouse. who's just like, I will rape you. You know, he doesn't even understand what that necessarily means, but that's his, his threat to the main character is I'm going to rape you. And I'm just like, wow, he feels so real to me because he's just such a bully and that's the he represents the the world that these characters are in he seems so realistic to me i'm embarrassed to say i've never seen welcome to the dollhouse it's rough it is very rough all of todd solon's films have that type of angle to them so that one what reminded me uh, of this movie a little bit too is happiness there's a a moment in happiness where philip seymour hoffman is talking about fucking this woman he's like i'm gonna fuck you so hard the cum's gonna come out your mouth and i'm just like that's basically the girls in the bathroom not understanding how sex is is just oh if he puts this here then this happens and you they don't even seem to necessarily be afraid of pregnancy they don't seem to be talking about like oh you know if you sit down on a toilet seat you're going to get pregnant kind of thing to your point from earlier with the condom it's like oh you're going to get AIDS because you had this condom in your mouth it's a scary scary world for anybody growing up in it these days and and even when we were growing up there were a lot of things that were scary but seeing this on screen it's just like wow it is so tough to navigate these waters and then yeah that backlash against it was just you could tell that people hadn't seen it, or if they saw it, they didn't necessarily understand what it was trying to show them. That's for sure, because I think what, what I found shocking, evidently there there were a number of people who saw it and remained shocked and thought it was appalling. And boy, is that a case of just not getting it. And that's sad. That That really makes me very sad, because... In some ways, I wouldn't have seen the film had it not been for all the controversy. And I hope that a number of people led to the film by the controversy realize what a great film it is and how different, absolutely different it is from uh, from what people were saying about it. Yeah, you want to scream like, that was the whole point. And then when a person's like, well, I did see it and I still think so, it's like, well, there, there's just no hope for you. Go twiddle your thumbs with Ted Cruz. I, I, I don't like how often I'm mentioning Ted Cruz. I can't stand the guy. But he did become the symbol of the reaction to the film. I, you know, I often, this is, I, I am not a conspiracy person. I really am not. But when all this happened, I had to wonder if there was not somebody, because it was really anger at Netflix. 
um, and wanting to take down anything Netflix supported like the Obamas. But I really wondered if there wasn't an inside person who deliberately distributed this the sexualized poster where if you look closely, as I mentioned before, you see that these girls are really uncomfortable. If there was someone on the inside who distributed this poster just to get the reaction that it got, I have wondered that because it just seemed too coincidental that they took a bad poster. I kind of wondered, as much as I liked the French poster... When I first saw it, it was like, you know, compared to the Netflix poster, you know, everyone seemed to be on the same page. Like, oh, that would have been the better poster. But honestly, I think people would have had a problem with that of, you know, these girls are wearing bras and wearing like G-strings over their skirts. And, you know, they're too young to be touching things like that. And it's like, you know, training bras are just as uncomfortable as every other bra. (laughs) So... While it's joyful, I feel like it's really tempered with the way these girls are growing up is buying into consumerism, by acquiring these objects that make them joyful. I mean, you want it to be that the girls are joyful because they're together and kind of moving down the street so quickly and joyfully and happily and making all the noise they're making. But, you know, it really is... Um, capitalism worming its way into every kind of human interaction. Well, and so poignant, too, that all of those purchases were made with stolen money. And it's like, and as they're moving forward, it's all purloined moments. You know, she has the stolen phone that she's finding things with, and they're hiding to do their practicing, you know, away from everyone. It, it seems to be a common theme of like what the mother did in the bedroom where no one was watching. You know, how sad that so much of femininity, you know, needs to be veiled. Yes. And, and yes, that's such a great way of putting it. That's right. The way that I was exposed to the film was via the controversy, but it was a lot of YouTube just blowing up and people having to make quote unquote reaction videos to things. And it was like throwing raw meat into just a, a herd of wild dogs because people were turning on each other like crazy. So I watched a few of these videos and the videos didn't necessarily have much to say in and of themselves, but would look at people that liked the film and said that there were really good things about it, which I think all three of us are saying. And the YouTubers would turn on them and it's just like, what is this guy? Oh, this guy's got a problem. He's some sort of pedophile because he'd like this movie and just like going after one another. It was just really strange looking at reviews and like, I'm going to go to Rotten Tomatoes and find anybody that gave this a positive review and I'm going to tear them a new one. It's like, okay, maybe again, look at the movie and look at the content of the film rather than just look at somebody to try to quote unquote take down with your YouTube video. And it was just this unbridled rage. And do we have to get angry at everything in the world? Can't we actually have a discussion and think about these things? Or pay attention to what it's really about. Get the veil on. That's another form of being veiled. That's for sure. Spectators who are completely impervious to what a film might be doing aside from what Ted Cruz says it's doing. Oh, God, I mentioned his name again. You know, every time you mention Ted Cruz, a kitten dies. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> okay, lips are sealed. Never again. <laughs> 
I have a faux granddaughter who is six going on seven. And looking at clothes to buy for her, I, you know, from the moment she was born, from the moment I found out that she was a girl, I was just like, this is going to be a tough road to hoe for this poor girl because it is tough. Well, it's tough on everybody, but it's especially tough on girls. And so a few years ago, looking into clothes for her because believe it or not, folks, they cut shorts, jeans, shirts, everything so different for girls versus boys. And it's not just this, well, boys play tougher. And so we need to have longer pants and these things from the moment a girl is a girl from the moment she comes out of that womb. It's just like, okay, we're going to put her in pink. We're going to have short shorts. We're going to have no sleeves on here. Or if they do have sleeves, it's going to be shorter than male sleeves. It's just this constant reinforcement of sexual gender identity and making these assumptions of girls don't play as hard. They're sexualizing very, very young girls. I mean, to the point where it's just like, oh yeah, sparkles and all this kind of stuff and the shortest sleeves you can possibly get and much shorter shorts. And it's like, no, just let these girls be human beings. Let them all dress how they want to dress, but please give them the option of having Longer shorts if they want, having the ability to wear pants so they can go out and, and be as rough and tumble as anybody else. Yeah. Yes, let them play. Well, also the irony about the reaction to the film, the negative reaction to the film, is that part of U.S. culture, uh, those kid beauty shows, toddlers and tiaras and all that, mm-hmm. and, and I believe that's a huge thing in Texas, you know, where Ted Cruz is <laughs> Oh, God, I said his name again. <laughs> The false um, morality is just, you know, it's just stunning that that could be perceived as okay. And uh, a film that critiques that whole dynamic is seen as scandalous. You know, the film isn't embracing it and saying, yay, it's great for girls to wear crop tops. So, you know, they're showing how troubling it is that the girls are just trying to navigate their way to what's expected of everyone has expectations, but no one provides the manual. Yeah. It's critiquing exactly what um, the critics have accused it of celebrating. How dare a movie make you think and feel uncomfortable at the same <laughs> Isn't time? Isn't that the truth? I just think this film is such a gem for being able to do that, to use that discomfort to such a degree and use it in such a, a positive way is, is really something, I think. It displays so well of how when you're at that age, you're sort of painting by numbers. You're just doing what you think is the next right thing to do. And the girls are wearing, you know, they're wearing crop tops and things like that. But certainly initially, they were just wearing what was comfortable, what they thought looked good. But it wasn't, uh, they weren't hoping to get laid by wearing a crop top. They were just, you know, it was a nice thing to wear. And it really, I suppose, hit home that the people watching this and thinking pedophilia and, you know, all of that, it's like, they're the ones projecting because the girls are just wearing a pair of pants they like. Well, yeah, it's like the first time you see the one girl with the the glasses. It's interesting that we never see her a second time without glasses. She's always in glasses after that. 
and she's got the really tight, they look like leather, but they're not leather pants, and she's got the crop top, and she's doing all these sexy moves and ironing her hair and all this. This is her, again, alone, thinking that she's not being watched, doing her thing, but she is already so being sexualized, and... You know, thank goodness that it was Amy that came up on her in that room and not some predator. Exactly. Exactly. And the film really does avoid, well, I think we've already said this, but it really does avoid actual predation on a part of adults in the world that they live in. I also, can I say something about how Paris is used in the film? Because, uh, you know, I said this in the 19th, Holy Small, and some of the. Like when the girls are dancing on the railroad tracks, that actually, I had to look this up because I certainly didn't recognize it, but that's, that's a part of this very famous park in, in Paris called the Butte Chaumont. Again, in the 19th, it's a big, huge park. I think it's very beautiful. The most famous part of it is that there's a bridge, uh, and a kind of dome-like structure, but the bridge is called the Suicide Bridge because mm. there have been and I think there's some famous poets who committed suicide by jumping off the bridge, but they put barriers up so that can't happen, although you could get over the barrier, I suppose, if you really wanted to. But um, it's a popular park, too. Like, you know, the 19th the Holy Small is very much working class and immigrant populations. But to take not a very pretty aspect of that park and use that as the setting for the girls' dancing, I thought was really kind of ingenious because now there are pretty things that are shown, like uh, in the scene where the girls are sitting on a concrete bench and you see this big dome in the in the background. That's the Viette Park, also in the 19th. That it's a newish park and it's very large and it's gotten a lot of attention and it's a tourist attraction in 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 Paris. But what that scene becomes in the film is like a place where the girls are conversing, not a place uh, that's going to attract tourists. And so I thought that the flavor, the sense that you get of Paris is so much based on the kind of communities that people create, like that these girls create. Because on another level, aside from, you know, the dancing provocative dancing or not, this is very much a film about a girl searching for her own community and for one that's not going to expect her to become a seventh wife, for example, or not expect her to chop onions all day, all day long. So I, I, I really admire, there's a real sense of a working class immigrant neighborhood in the, in the film, but um, there's some particular touches that I just find really touching in terms of how the city is portrayed. When at least at the end, when she does go to the wedding, she gets told, you can wear what you want. You know, she doesn't have to wear that blue dress and she doesn't wear the dance outfit that her auntie was riding her for. And her mom defends her about what she's wearing and then says, you can wear what you want to this ceremony, to this wedding. And we get to see her in normalish clothes. And she gets to go out into that neighborhood that you're talking about and be herself at the end of the film. So there is that glimmer of hope, thank goodness, because otherwise this movie would just crush you. That's right. That's right. And it's very, very emancipatory, that last, the last set of images of her kind of going higher and higher and higher 
or seems to be, you know, kind of flying over the city and getting her own point of view. It's hard to look at an image like that and not think of the most famous French film about adolescence and growing up, before in her blows. Um, this is not a freeze frame at the end of uh, Cuties, but, you know, it's the close-up of a, of a young kid kind of deciding on where his or her, in this case, future is going to, is going to go. So I, I love that last image. I'm curious about how they got that done because it feels like she's on a trampoline, but that the trampoline is just going up higher and higher and higher. And we never see the trampoline. We just see her coming up into frame, going down and coming up as we just get higher and higher over Paris. I couldn't say, but it does look like instead of skipping rope, she's or jumping rope. She's bouncing on a trampoline. That sure is a great image. I think that all three of us had had an opportunity to see um, the director's earlier film, which was from 2015 called Mamans or Mothers. And it's interesting because I wasn't sure what this was going to be about, but it's almost like a dry run of cuties, which was really kind of neat to see. It's 20 minutes long and there are some similarities, but in this one, the father is very, very present and the girl is younger and she's got an older brother. So it changes the family dynamic because having an older brother versus a younger brother that, and, uh, and a baby that she basically is kind of saddled with in cuties. But here she's got the older brother who again picks on her <laughs> and does all these like, normal older brother stuff, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, of course you see the, the plot about the family in Memo. But what's different is that in, in Cuties, you actually see a girl's point of view expanded beyond the, the realm of the, of the, of the family. I thought Maman was really great too. Oh, it really was. It's astounding. I think that watching that, it's everything I think you were dreading would be the eventuality of the storyline, you know, with the, the new wife coming to live with them. So it's, it's wonderful that she was able to craft cuties with this sort of looming over. And it's like, wow, that, that was exactly what I feared would happen that the father, you know, the, the wife would be pompous and spoiled, you know, and the other family taking the side of them. And having the brother be an older brother. He, of course, immediately identifies with the father and welcomes the second wife um, into the household. And that's an interesting shift from what happens in, in, in Cuties, where it really is much more of a woman-dominated household. Right. She's not so much of the uh, Ami isn't, is, well, I guess the name wouldn't be Ami in Mamon, but it, that she's, that, that surrogate parent aspect is kind of taken away, but God, the lo- the little brother in cuties. I mean, he was almost Baba Duke level annoying. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, you really wanted he. Yeah, he was a little pest. He, he definitely was. Yeah, when she put the broom handle on the door, it's like, yeah, I, you know, it, it's the wrong decision, but God, that would have felt so right. Well, yeah, to have a way to keep your little sibling away from you when you're trying to impress this new friend, yeah, sign me up. With unfortunate consequences, of course, but 
Well, at least it didn't die. Like that's the thing. Like I, the, like I said, dread just overshadows this whole movie. You know, I'm I'm dreading the pedophile that comes along and rapes her. I'm dreading that the little brother's going to drown in the bathtub. I'm I'm dreading everything in this movie. You know, you're dreading genital cutting. It's pervasive through this whole film that you expect it to get even worse than it is. And you can't say at the end of it, like, oh, well, thank goodness nothing really bad happened, because it's still bad. It's not the horrible things that we were thinking, but it still is a bad thing that goes on in this. And it, it is the truth of of truly coming to age that, you know, in hindsight, well, it wasn't so bad. You know, but yeah, and you could see like, well, it could have been so much worse. This could have gone wrong. This could have happened. But at the time, you know, it is kind of the edge of your seat at every moment. You're right. There's so much tension. And yet at the end, there's so much joy just to see her free for a moment. I wonder if there was more that I might have missed I suppose the pile of things affecting Ami and everything that she's kind of warring with in her head. Uh, when Angel- Angelica is in the laundry room and she's ironing her hair, and then Ami, of course, tries to iron her hair, uh, being a white girl who has ironed my hair, uh, even though my hair is incredibly flat, but I had to try it, you know. <laughs> but I, I'm assuming that, you know, coarse hair, you know, probably putting it on an iron for too long wouldn't be a good idea. Even more so than having, you know, white hair. I wondered if that was, I mean, I thought it was wonderful that there was that added commentary of like, on top of everything else, she has, you know, a lot of white, uh, French women or girls that she's in school with. And, you know, she's a black girl on top of everything else that's affecting her or making her feel a bit different. You know, she also sees this white girl with the flat, you know, flingy hair that's swaying with the music. And I, I wondered if there were other nods that I, I might have missed just because well, I'm not aware. Well, it's interesting that one of the members of the cuties is a black girl, but she's not an immigrant. So she gets to push Amy away to be like, you're an immigrant. You know, it's not you're black, it's you're an immigrant because Kumba, I think her name is, is she's much more a part of the group. And actually, Angela, I think um, Angelica is North African. I think she's, I, I, I think she's, I mean, she may not be, well, she's African and she's North African. I don't know mm. if she's an immigrant or not. She, it's true. She's lighter. And it's interesting how the film negotiates those differences between the girls. There's only one, like, really white girl. And it's, um, what's her name? It's Jess. Yes, Jess. With the long blonde hair. Who's the least interesting yes, character in the exactly entire right. film? She really is. I mean, Angelica is is yeah. I guess she's the most interesting. Um, I felt bad for the chubby girl um, who gets shoved in the in the river, but um, like even at the end when Ami is is uh, skipping rope, that's a mixed race scene. With there's white white women and and there's um, black women and there's women in the traditional African dress, but there's women who aren't. I hate to use this phrase, but it's a real multicultural movie. I mean, it's very much based in the experience of somebody who is French Senegalese, but at the same time, it really embraces this sense of a kind of widely diverse culture in that in that neighborhood. 
Well, I thought that when she was jumping rope, you know, it made me feel like because there was so much representation of truly being, I, I don't know, so much the area would be kind of a melting pot or a mixing pot, I suppose. But for her to find her place amongst all these differences surrounding her, I, mean, I thought it was, um, I, I don't think it was accidental that there were so many things represented. I'm very curious to see what the director does next. Well, isn't that the truth? She's so gifted. I saw in so many reviews there were, there was a common theme that even if the review, you know, was applauding so many of the brilliant things that were done in the film, it would still make a pause to say, but I don't recommend seeing this or it's very difficult. You might not want to watch it. I don't think I've ever seen so many reviewers pause to tell people not to watch the film. It's like, and because after, you know, as soon as honestly, the, the bedroom with her under the bed, seeing the mother's feet and hearing those slapping sounds. I mean, I immediately wanted to tell so many people like, you got to see this movie. It's just so raw. You must never listen to this. I think you, you should not keep it. You should destroy it. The one line that stuck out in one of those many YouTube videos that really got me was i know what this movie's trying to do but i don't agree with it well well, first off why wouldn't you agree with it this is a problem you know this over sexualization of children is a problem the way that we treat children growing up is a problem all of these things are problems that should probably be addressed this movie is looking at these things and it's showing us the ugly truth but i don't agree with it i don't agree with the truth give me the alternate facts instead what does that even mean you know, like, I don't agree. I don't agree. You gave me a D on this paper. I don't agree. Um, <laughs> You've never had that happen, I'm sure. <laughs> no, not ever. Um, yeah, it's a strange, the power of opinions, you know, no matter how ill-formed or incoherent they are. I, I was really thinking of, you know, them being 11 and how was I when I was 11? What was going on? And I remembered a weird statistic. Our junior high was seventh and eighth grade. And so that would be, I think I was a little young for my class. So I was, um, I think 13 in eighth grade, maybe. So 12 and seventh. And out of those two years, and we had very small classes. I think there were maybe between those two years, there might have been, you know, 250 kids in the whole school. And there were three pregnant girls between those two years. And it's like, for people saying, well, I don't agree with what's being shown or what's being said. It's like, well, the reality is that girls are getting pregnant. The blindness in attacking cuties to everything that goes on in American culture that re- that objectifies and fetishizes and sexualizes young, young girls, you know, everything from beauty pageants to you know, whatever. That's kind of horrifying not to be able to see what goes on in your own culture because you're so busy. Well, in this case, and this syndrome has a long history, you blame the French, you know, and she's French Senegalese, but, you know, it comes from France. It always comes from someplace else. Like in the 19th century, homosexuality always came from someplace else, usually France. Uh, you know, everything comes from uh, some other place, some other corrupt country. It is not embedded in, in U.S. culture. Yeah, it's amazing how impervious people can be 
to what goes on in their own lives in terms of the sexualization of children. Well, all those calls to, you know, ban the film and then ban Netflix for not deleting the film. Yet, um, gosh, I forget the actress's name, but uh, the lead in Stranger Things. Uh, Millie Bobby Brown. Yes. I, I think when she was 12, uh, one of the major magazines had a spread of like sexy TV stars and she was listed in it. And it was like, I, I don't recall uh, calls to ban, you know, all of that. Like, that's totally okay, but you can't have a film showing, you know, the um, the disturbance and, you know, the personal, I suppose, obstacles that this girl is going through, showing her side of it and how difficult everything was for her. That's not okay, <laughs> but you can call them sexy. It emphasizes, once again, how showing things from a girl's point of view is rare. It just doesn't happen enough. Yeah, the girls in the bathroom, you know, discussing um, oral sex and things. It's, you know, so... And and when you're watching it, you feel almost nervous. Like, someone's going to get in trouble because girls shouldn't be speaking that way. But, you know, if if you look at coming-of-age boy films, they're talking about boobs, they're looking at porn magazines. I mean, even in Monster Squad, there was a whole scene where the guy had, um, I think it was accidentally took the picture of the girl changing in, like, the, the, the neighbor's house, and they were all, like, fighting to see the Polaroid of her, you know, possibly in her bra or something. It's weird. When boys do it, it's so much less offensive. Yeah, you look at something like the blowjob scene or how to how to perform a blowjob from Fast Times at Richmond High, and you're just like, oh, this isn't right that this is going on. And But yet, Phoebe Cates coming out of the pool is like the, the moment on the VHS tape that uh, immediately starts to fall apart because so many people have rewound it and watched it over and over again. It's like I was talking with a friend of mine the other day, and she's like, oh, yeah, my daughter, I think her daughter is very young, and I can't remember how old she was, but it was shocking to me because she said, oh, my broad, my daughter, her boobs are as big as mine. She just had her first period, and I'm just like, but your daughter is so young. I think she was 11 or younger, and I just immediately thought about like my granddaughter, and I'm just like, well – She's only got a few more years before this stuff happens. And this is, you know, it's like, no, no, I want her to, I want her to be a kid and enjoy her life as a kid. I don't want her to have to worry about this other stuff. And I mean, the way that industrialized society is going, I think the more industrialized you are, the younger the girls have periods. So it's just like, okay, yeah, it's people are growing up faster and it's, it's awful. 11, 12 seemed to be the average age for like my girlfriends and I. And yet there wasn't a sexual education class until we were 13. So you had girls bursting into tears thinking they were hemorrhaging. You know, it wasn't exactly Carrie, but, um, still I, I remember like so many girls having almost a breakdown when they started because they didn't know what to do what to use, you know, it's like you hold up a maxi pad and it's like, how the hell does this work? Yeah. And then you ladies, you think that you deserve free tampons and maxi pads, not from my tax dollars. You're not getting those sexual things from my tax dollars. Who knows what you do with those things? 
They really have so many uses. I, I mean, I've used uh, maxi pads in so many inappropriate ways. Probably when you're cooking and cleaning, because I think that's all that women are supposed to do. <laughs> when I'm barefoot, you know. All right, we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. En cette fin d'hiver 1953, Staline a droit de vie et de mort sur presque la moitié de la planète. Nul n'aurait pu imaginer que le monstre totalitaire vivait ses derniers jours. Les Russes continuent à vivre et à aimer. Ils étaient fiers de leur pays. À la tête d'une famille nombreuse, Yuri Glinsky est chirurgien et général de l'armée rouge. Moscou est inondé de lumière pendant que Staline se prépare à fusiller les Juifs. Le complot des blouses blanches illustrera de façon brutale la violence de l'antisémitisme comme politique d'État. Cet hiver 53 devait sonner le glas de la vie dorée du général Yuri Glinsky. KGB avait tout organisé. La machine infernale était en marche. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Khrushchev, my car. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Angela and Judith. Angela, what's been keeping you busy lately? I've been pretty busy being by myself, staying at home, and not working on the not-so-great Next American novel. And how about you, Judith? What's going on in your world? Well, living the dream during quarantine. You know, I did do recently a couple of things for Criterion. I did a video essay for the the restored DVD of Beau Travail, the Claire Denis film. And uh, I really enjoyed doing that. A lot of people in film studies are doing video essays these days, and it was my first attempt, and um, I really I really liked doing it. And the restored edition of Beau Travail is just beautiful, um, and they really did a great job. And then, coming out soon, is a Dorothy Arzner film from 1932, Merely we go to hell, and I I wrote an essay, you know, liner essay for the for the DVD. So that was um, that was interesting too because that's not one of my favorites. Uh, watching it again and paying really close attention to it allowed me to see the film in a different way. And I read the novel it was based on, which was quite interesting. That's more information than you asked for. But those two things, those two things were criterion. Um, I did relatively recently. So. Yeah, I know you wrote, well, you wrote a book on Asnor, you wrote a book on Denis, and I don't know if I've seen that many Denis films, but it would be great to have you back on sometime and we can talk about her. Oh, that would be super. I keep hoping, the one, the film of hers that I like the most is called I Can't Sleep, Je Passe Sommeil, it's from 1995. I don't know why Criterion doesn't restore that. It would be fabulous if they if they did. But yeah, she's a great director. I love her films. She's great. 
Well, thank you so much, ladies, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Each time I see a little girl of five or six or seven, I can't resist a joyous urge to smile and say thank heaven for little girls. All little girls get bigger every day. Thank heaven for little girls. They grow up in the most delightful way. Those little eyes so helpless and appealing. One day will flash and send you crashing through the ceiling. Thank heaven for little girls. Thank heaven for them all, no matter where, no matter who. Without them, what would little boys do? Thank heaven. Thank heaven. Thank heaven for little girls. And appealing One day will flash and send you Crashing through the ceiling Thank heaven For little girls Thank heaven for them all No matter where, no matter who Without them what would little boys do Thank heaven Thank heaven Thank heaven.